0: Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Forensic anthropologist Kathleen Conabry discusses issues surrounding what really goes on at a crime scene and what the term forensic actually means. Thank you. Um, Welcome to everyone. Um, I'd like to know how many people in the audience are involved or working in forensics. Anybody? Well, that makes my job easier then. <laughs> right. Tonight we're going to talk about um, CSI unmasked. The things that actually go on on the television are a little different than what actually happens in real crime scene investigation. Oh, that's me. I'm a forensic and biological anthropologist. I graduated in 2007 from Bournemouth University. Right. What we need to know is what does forensics actually mean? Does anybody know what forensics means? No? Okay. well, I'm going to tell you. (laughs) The word forensic is applied to any discipline that is used in the context of the law. That is, aside from sounding sexy on your CV, it actually does have a socially perceived gravitas, which is rarely applied to any other forms in any other discipline. So why is it so popular? Everybody here must have seen CSI or bone kickers or any of those kinds of dramas. It's exciting, titillating even. It involves detection and investigation. It also involves cutting-edge science. In fact, the the the, the discipline of forensics pushes the limits of science faster than any other discipline. It's topical and it involves a current events. So, the things that you hear on the news generally have something forensic applied to them, particularly crimes that involve um, bodily harm. It involves basic human rights issues. It allows us to think that we're setting the world to rights or maybe making a difference. And it gives people a sense of closure that makes them feel safe. And it's an area where specialist knowledge becomes commonplace. Now that's a problem because the faster we push the science forward and the more we tell people about it on television, the faster we have to run to keep up with the criminals who we're also educating. So what exactly constitutes a crime? The word root itself is Latin, crimen, meaning fault, charge, or accusation. And It is defined as conduct that is prohibited and has a specific punishment that's prescribed by law, such as fines, incarceration, or where it's legal, the death penalty. However, there is no crime without a law. If there's no law in the land prohibiting that act, then that act is, no law, is not a crime. Now, this is interesting because a crime scene can be anything, really, anywhere. As long as there's a location, and it contains evidence, and there's a place where a crime has been committed. So that could be anything from this paper cup that now has my DNA on it, to my body, your body. It could be a location, it can be a whole area, it can be hundreds of miles long and wide, or it can be a very, very small thing such as a fingerprint on a bottle. There is only one basic principle of forensics, really. One single foundational premise that all forensic evidence is based on, and it's called the Lockhart Principle. Now, this principle, basically, um, was invented by a Mr. Lockhart, who was the head of the first um, forensic science service, if you will, located in (coughs) Lyon, France. And he understood that it is impossible to go into an environment and not leave something of yourself behind, whether it's an eyelash or a skin cell, and to take something of yourself away from that environment because every contact leaves a trace. Here's a case study. When I was at Bournemouth University in 2004, um, up there on Talbot Heath, there was a fellow who was murdered. And for a long time, they couldn't find who the perpetrator was, until they started looking at the flora and fauna. And what they discovered is a very small thing, like a little bit of skin cell material, actually, that was on the person's jacket, eventually convicted him and sent him to jail for life. Let me introduce you to my friend, Lacerta Agilis. Here he is. And here's his wife, Mrs. (laughs) Agilis. Now, these critters live underground most of the year, but they're out and active in the environment between April and October. I don't know if you know this, but lizards continue to grow throughout their lives. The small lizards shed their skin on a very, very regular basis, and older lizards that have pretty much gotten their form, these guys only grow to about 20, I think 20 centimeters, um, they shed when they start putting on weight. They got lots of food. It's summertime, and they shed their skin so that they can um, go into the winter. Now, this animal is found in only two locations. One is the Talbot Heath in Dorset. And one is in the sand dunes of Lancashire. Now, it's also an endangered species. So this fellow, who went into the heath with his other fellow friend, they had some sort of altercation. One of them was murdered and left there for a very long time, didn't realize that the fact that he was on the heath, where there was only these two, these two places in the whole of the UK where this animal lives has an altercation, he somehow manages to get the transfer onto onto his clothing, and he was actually convicted by the skin cells of this little animal. This goes to prove the point that Lockhart's principle works. You can't go into an environment and not take something away with you, and sooner or later, they're able to find out what that is. Let's go on to types of crime. Crime runs from everything from one kid smacking another kid in the street because he wants his toys, all the way up to genocide, which is the mass and deliberate extinction of a culture or an ethnicity. We have hate crimes, we have property crimes, crimes of passion, genocide, vandalism, theft, you name it. Right. Criminal damage or property crimes. Property crimes are actually what happens most in the UK. That's theft, robbery, vandalism, deliberate and wanton destruction of other people's property. (laughs) Then you have fraud and forgery, which is considered to be white-collar crimes. And we'll get into why that is later. Drug offenses, everybody knows about those. Possession trafficking. Larceny is anything that has to do with theft. Now, in the States, you'll have heard something like he was charged with grand larceny which generally means that the larceny or the theft is something over a certain amount of money, worth over a certain amount of money, say $3,000 or $5,000. We have sexual offenses, which recently includes grooming of children. Now, I'm sure you've heard on the Internet that there are pedophiles who are going onto websites and chat rooms and that sort of thing, and they engage in a process called grooming. And what they do is they pretend, say, that they're a 14-year-old girl or... You know, or perhaps a 14-year-old boy who's having a conversation with a young girl or even another young boy, and um, they start grooming them, they start talking to them, they start becoming their friend over a period of time, and this is now illegal. It used to be that you had to actually commit the sexual offense, so you had to abscond with the child or anything like that, but now the grooming of children is also illegal and falls under sexual offenses. Uh, we have violent disorder offenses, The worst one of which is terrorism, but anything, it runs from um, rioting in the streets, um, pilfering, looting, all those sorts of things are considered to be violent disorder offenses. And then we have the one that's mostly in the news, which is violence against the person. That runs from harassment, too many phone calls from the ex, or, you know, homicide. It runs to punching, the young men punching each other on the street after a drunken brawl on a Saturday night, right up through homicide and genocide. By the way, that's not the only list of crimes. There are more crimes than I, the list would go on and on and on. We could talk about it forever. There's probably, of the list that I have that I've been collecting, there's more than 400 offenses in, inside of these categories, and there are more categories as well. Right, crime behavior is interesting. You've got two types. You've got premeditated crime, which is planned crime and is by far the worst that carries the, har- the harshest punishment. And then you have opportunistic crime, crimes of opportunity, which I believe crimes of passion also fall under. Now, every potential criminal is limited to the opportunity to commit a crime by the situation in which he or she finds himself in society. That is to say, you're not going to have somebody who is a bin man, necessarily um, engaging in insider trading, which is also a crime. Because there are few opportunities to use their skills, more blue-collar crime often uses the, uh, has an involvement in the use of force. People tend to get hurt. There's a greater chance that those victims are going to come forward and report the crime. White-collar crimes are less likely to be reported because of the misuse of the criminal skill and the lack of violence involved. These are the kinds of crimes that are things like... Um, <clears throat> insurance fraud, things that are against, tend to be against a company or against a, uh, some other discipline rather than a physical crime. And they don't always get caught. White-collar criminals are... There are a lot more white-collar criminals than you would think. This is the crime survey for the UK for 2008 and 2009. Now, you see you've got the British Crime Survey... And then you have the police recorded crime. The British Crime Survey is an actual survey that is taken from the criminals themselves, whether or not it's been reported, whether or not they've been arrested. You can see that almost all of those are property crimes. You've got 20% are all violence crimes, which include robbery and exclude sexual offenses, and then vandalism, other theft, vehicle-related theft, and burglary. And these are criminal reported statistics. On the other side of that, you can see you've got police-recorded crime, drug offenses, whatever all other offenses are that probably don't fall in these ones, Um, offenses against vehicles, theft, fraud, forgery, criminal damage, and you can see that violence against the person in this country is only about 19% of all the crimes that are committed. Interestingly, the majority of crime, as I said earlier, is property-related. The risk of becoming a victim of violent crime in the UK is about 3.2%. And interestingly, men are more than twice as likely to be victims of violent crime with the 16 to 24-year-olds at the highest risk. I was surprised by that because I thought that most victims of crime would be female. But apparently, um, females have other ways of dealing with things that don't necessarily include punching each other out or stabbing each other and things like that. The ultimate goal of all investigation crime is to bring the perpetrators to justice. But in the UK legal system, we don't have the death penalty here. The goal is not necessarily to punish the offender, but to find some way to rehabilitate them so that they can function in society within the laws and norms of the country. So what happens first? Now we're not talking about CSI here, we're talking about a real crime scene. First, we have the incident occurring, whatever it is, like the the girl whose bones they've just found on the side of the M5 last week. While the incident is occurring, trace material is deposited by the suspect and by the victim at the crime scene. And then, wherever the crime scene is, of course, that material is taken away with the suspect and is left on the victim. At some point, something is discovered or something is reported to the police... The initial responder will do an assessment to see if a crime has actually occurred. Just because we think a crime has occurred doesn't mean it has necessarily occurred. His job, or her job, is to save life over limb and take the suspect into custody if they're still at the scene. And to make the scene safe for the public by setting up excuse me, traffic and temporary cordons. They remove all the unnecessary people from the scene. They secure the witnesses. Sometimes they're sequestered away from everyone else so they can't talk to each other in case they are involved in the crime. Um, They do a preliminary survey of the the scene, and then the SOCO, who is usually the photographer, and the SIO, the senior investigating officer, attends the scene with the scientific support manager. These three people determine what's going to happen and how it's going to devolve, and then they start taking pictures. So let me just say, if you happen to be driving by a road traffic accident and there's a photographer there, that means that the person is not going to the hospital. That means that they haven't survived it. So what happens next? First, we establish the traffic cordon, which moves all the traffic out of the area. Then we have the outer cordon, which is the place where all the emergency crews, the firemen, the ambulances are going to hang out. And then the inner cordon is usually where the evidence, where the evidence starts and goes in towards where the crime has occurred. The scene access control center is set up, (coughs) sometimes called the, (coughs) the cordon access control system. The approach paths are decided and implemented, and then, of course, security has to come into that as well. The emergency crews, the fire, the ambulance, they all come along. Then we set up the clean and dirty areas, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. Property areas are set up and an officer assigned. Now, a property area is... The place where it has nothing to do with the evidence necessarily, although there is some crossover there because the property has to do with collecting uh, people's things. You know, you have a car accident, your wallet goes out the window, shoes, the kids' teddy bears, all that kind of stuff. Those things are all collected into a certain area, and they're examined for trace after the fact. Right. Um, Required equipment that is not carried in by the specialists is brought to the scene, like JCBs and heavy machinery, anything like that. And then if there's a major incident, like there was um, July 6th with the the bombings on the um, underground, they set up a triage area or a temporary mortuary. Sometimes it's right beside the area, but if they think there's still danger of further injury, they'll move it somewhere else. The cordons. The traffic cordon is deployed at or beyond the outer cordon. Vehicular access to the area surrounding the scene is always controlled and or prohibited. It's common practice to do it in a one-way system. You can just imagine the traffic jam with the police and the fire engines and everybody trying to get into the scene and then everybody trying to leave with either the victims or the injured people through the same route. So they tend to make it in a one-way system. The outer cordon seals off an extensive controlled area surrounding the crime scene. All the points are controlled and everybody has to be vetted who's going in and out of the outer cordon. That doesn't mean necessarily that they record who goes in and out of the outer cordon, but they do have to vet them to see that they really have business being there. Emergency vehicles are positioned outside, sorry, inside the outer cordon, but outside of the inner cordon, and that's to make sure that there's not any um, problems with regard to evidence. Sometimes the outer cordon can be miles and miles away from the scene if they feel that there was any body dumping, dragging, fighting along the path, anything like that. It can be miles away from where the actual crime-slash-body is laying. Now, the inner cordon provides immediate security to the rescue zone and potential crime scene. The fire and police service will often mark the inner cordon with red tape. Now, that depends sometimes on whether they have any. It also depends on who's got jurisdiction over what's happening... Sometimes they just mark it with yellow. It depends on how large the crime scene is as well. Um, everybody who goes into and out of the inner <coughs> corn is recorded. They have to write everything down. You have to sign in, you have to sign out with the date and the time every time you go in and out. Right. This is the scene access control center. The senior investigating officer, the senior scene of crime officer, the SOCO, and the scientific support manager all work from this place. Now I'm sure you've seen these somewhere along the way. Well, perhaps not in Britain so much because there's not as much crime as, say, there is in America. But um, sometimes it's a truck like this, a lorry. Sometimes it's a tent. Sometimes it's the back of someone's vehicle, whoever happens to be there, and wherever they can get the scientific and technical uh, um, information and machinery that they need to be able to assess the crime scene. Everything and everyone is controlled from here. All the orders, the sequence of events, who's going to do what, where it's going to go, how it's going to happen, is all controlled from here. Now, this is something that you don't see too much in CSI Miami the common approach path, but it is very, very important. It's vital to the crime scene. All the personnel, all the vehicles approach the scene by this common approach path. It's logical. If you have people messing and walking all over the crime scene, the chances are you're going to trample evidence or destroy evidence. And so the the common approach path is usually decided by the first person at the scene. Sometimes they change it, but it's to reduce any contamination issues. The scene security and the safety of personnel is the uppermost of importance at a crime scene, particularly the safety of the personnel. Medical assistance comes next. Communication about who's going where and who's doing what and how they're all talking to each other to make sure the thing goes smoothly. Then you have to have transportation for victims. You have to have transportation for property, for all those things. That's all got to be set up. Somebody has to organize all the equipment that comes in, and it all has to be vetted as well. Then there's clothing requirements. Unlike CSI Miami, unlike CSI Las Vegas or You know, you don't go into a a crime scene like this. You know, they have to get all those clothing requirements, all the little booties and all the equipment and the masks and the safety goggles and all that. Somebody's got to deal with that. Lots of things at a crime scene happen at night. It's very difficult to see, even with really good lighting, to see evidence. And often, they will actually pop a tent over it and leave it till the next day because the lighting that they have is not necessarily strong enough, bright enough, or good enough to be able to find trace evidence. Then we have to think about the personnel. Those people have to go to the loo. They have to find a sandwich. They have to be able to get out of the rain if they're working outside. So there's shelter and facilities that has to go into that as well that has to come onto the crime scene. Somebody has to organize that. And then, of course, food and drink. Right, this is where it gets fun. The clean and dirty areas. This is where the difference between media-portrayed forensics and real-life forensics actually begins. This is where the CSIs and the SOCOs and other specialists suit up. They get in their Tyvek paper suits, their booties, their hairnets, their masks, and their gloves. That's my pet peeve, just so you know. And only after everybody's suited up and everything is organized is when they start collecting evidence. Can you tell this is my pet peeve? A note about gloves. Right, this image on the left-hand side, these are gloves. Sometimes they're used for things like cutting up your chicken or who knows what else you could use them for, but they're not sterile. When you go to a crime scene, if you're a SoCo, you're trained in how to use sterile equipment, how to put it on. There's actually the second image in the middle is actually a little piece of paper that tells you exactly how not to get your own DNA and your own epithelials on the outside of the gloves. You have to be trained on how to put gloves. Sometimes you have to double glove, depending on what you're touching. Sometimes you have to wear very, very, very thick gloves if you're dealing with um, medical waste, decomp fluids, anything that's a danger to your health, you have to wear bigger gloves. This picture on the bottom shows how you're actually supposed to be putting on sterile gloves. And, of course, the fellow on the right is an actual Soko. Notice the boots. So this is okay if you're working in the UK. Can you imagine if you're working in steamy at the Amazon or Bolivia or somewhere where it's really, really, really hot and you still have to be dressed like that? It's not very comfortable. Here we go. On the left, we have CSI, crime drama. On the right, a real crime scene one does not walk onto a crime scene in high heels with your hair hanging down and your street clothes. This is what it actually looks like. One wears sterile paper suit and booties over one's shoes. One does not leave one's hair hanging down over the body and contaminating the evidence... And in this particular case, this is Candy Alexander. She plays Alex Wood on CSI Miami. She talks to her victims. She has little conversations with them, and she strokes their hair and, you know, has a chat about their families and everything. It doesn't happen that way. And one wears a hairnet or a hood over their hair so as not to contaminate the crime scene. And safety goggles. And masks. Right, so why don't the dramas do it right? Let's have a look. This is Halle Berry. She's a guest star on CSI Miami. <laughs> <laughs> Sexy? You bet. This is Halle Berry, who's an actual CSI, getting ready for work. Sexy? Not so much. That's why they don't do it right. That's why they show up to the crime scene in their, you know, in their um, Manolo. Blanco, whatever his name is, the shoes. You know, high heels and um, designer outfits and their hair hanging down and jewelry. A real CSI doesn't wear rings, doesn't wear jewelry, doesn't wear uh, bracelets or anything that's going to contaminate the crime scene. So what constitutes evidence? There are actually five (coughs) concepts. First, you have transfer, which we've already talked about, the Lockhart Principle, which happens directly before or during the commission of a crime. Then you have identification, which we take, you place the object in a class. Let's say, okay, we've got something here at the crime scene. It's metal. Then you narrow that down to classification. Not only is it metal, but it's made out of iron. Then you try and associate that item with somebody at the crime scene. For example, not only is it metal, not only is it iron, but now we've got iron fragments on some fellow's clothing. So that kind of is a little bit suspicious. Then you have reconstruction, which is understanding the sequence of past events. For example, your victim has a blunt force trauma injury with an iron object. You find iron in the wound. That makes you immediately suspicious. The last four only happen when the item becomes evidence in conjunction with a criminal event, because on their own, when you and I are sitting here, you're sitting in that seat, when you leave here, the fibers from that chair are going to be stuck to your backside, you know, the dust in the air is going to be in your hair, and you're going to have left your skin cells or an eyelash or something here as well. But that doesn't mean it's criminal. Right, types of evidence. First, we have testimonial evidence. Everybody knows how reliable that can be. They come from the victims or from the witnesses, and they're subjective. When you're under stress, you don't always see the things that you think you see. And then you have physical evidence. This is also referred to as real evidence, and it consists of tangible articles like hairs, fibers, that sort of thing. And it's objective. And what they use it for, really, is to corroborate the testimonial evidence. If you saw some guy kill some guy, and you thought he had red trousers on, but he actually <coughs> had black trousers on, well, when they pick up a black piece of fiber off the body, then they'll be able to corroborate what you've said about the fact that you saw this fellow kill him. Right. The physical evidence is also called the silent witness and it can include but is not limited to, excuse me a second, biological material, semen, saliva, epithelials, blood from which DNA can be extracted. Who knows what epithelials are? We hear this word all the time. Everybody? Nobody? Ah, but it's not only skin. It's things that, it's a, it's a, it's a layer of cells that actually lines all of the body cavities and all of the organs. Now, the chances of you leaving an epithelial from your stomach lining at the crime scene unless you've been stabbed are slim to none. However, you can leave your skin cells, and you can be convicted on one skin cell. Considering how many skin cells you have and how many you shed in a day, um, I don't think it's possible to commit the perfect crime. Right, we have fibers. There is a database of fibers of every different kind, certainly in the United States, Of every different kind of fiber that's used inside the... I'm sure you've seen this on CSI, actually. um, Inside vehicles, from the color, how many strands are in each piece of fiber, how it was dyed, the process, all the different um, metal and other agents that are used to create the fabric. Um, For sofas, for clothing, for pretty much everything that's anything to do with fibers. Paint chips, obvious. Glass, obvious. Soil and vegetation. Now, if there's any of you in here that are archaeologists, you'll know what I mean. A lot of things can be, particularly for older crimes, when you're dealing with soil and with vegetation, you can actually decipher seasonality when the body was deposited. That has to do with pollen. It has to do with certain things that happen in the soil when, say, the leaves are rotting in the fall versus what's happening when the mushrooms are coming up. Um, Accelerants. Everybody's heard about accelerants. If you go to a fire, arson, anything like that, they can tell what kind of accelerant, where it was placed, what got on fire first. In terms of bodies, they can actually tell where the fire started, which part of the body was closest to the fire. And there's little marks that happen on the bone that actually point in the direction of the fire, where the fire came from. They can also tell whether the body was fleshed When the fire was set, which means somebody's trying to cover something up, generally speaking. Or whether the person was long dead and um, somebody just accidentally set a fire there and didn't know the body was there. Fingerprints. We'll talk about fingerprints in a minute. Hair, obvious one. Everybody loses their hair. I personally would never be able to commit a crime because I lose my hair like crazy. Here we go. Impression evidence. You've seen this before. Shoe prints. Um... Tire tracks, you see them pouring that stuff into it. Sometimes they, use, they used to use plaster of Paris, but it took forever to dry. Now they actually use the same compound that your dentist uses when he takes an impression of your teeth. It's very expensive to use, so they don't try not to use it too often if they can find other ways of corroborating the evidence. And then tool marks. Tool marks is a whole discipline in itself. It has to do not only with the mark of the tool, something as simple as some, guy, some, some person uh, using a crowbar to get into your back door, all the way through patterns on bone, say in the skull, or certain marks on the body or in the bones that have to do with someone using a tool on someone else. Fracture patterns can tell you whether somebody was already in the building and went out of the building, or whether they were out of the building and forced their way into the building. Interestingly, fracture patterns are also uh, used to be able to determine um, location and um, direction of blunt force trauma on bone. Narcotics, the obvious one, and ballistics. There's a lot more. This talk is very, very limited in terms of what we can discuss in le- at length. Right, let's talk about DNA. Everybody knows what DNA is, right? Okay. And they seem to use it an awful lot in, in these programs. But it hasn't been around that long, actually. The first criminal caught using DNA analysis was a British baker by the name of Colin Pitchfork in 1987 who raped and murdered two women. He was from Bristol. The same year, handy that, the United States prosecuted Tommy Lee Andrews who was caught using DNA technology via semen collected from a murdered rape victim. They both got life sentences. Right, the DNA process. This is where it gets a bit complicated for people who don't have a science background. I'll try and, I'm not a DNA professional, but I'll try and make it simple. There's two, well there's more than two, but the two that are most in use um, processes for discovering DNA and trying to make a DNA identification is um, restriction fragmented length polymorphisms, or RFLP. The problem is that it takes a very, very large sample to be able to go and get an identification. The second, which has been discovered only recently, is polymerase chain reaction, or PCR. And it comes from a small organism that was found in Yellowstone Park in the the geysers there. And this particular process, you can make a million copies of a single piece of DNA in about three hours. Now, you will notice that it used to be really, really, really difficult to get a paternity test. Lots of times it had to be court ordered. It was extremely expensive. And that's because they were using this first technique. Now... You can go on the Internet, type in Google Paternity, and a hundred different companies come up. They'll do some DNA testing. They'll tell you where you're from. They'll tell you who your ancestors were because this is less expensive to do because you're using an organism, and it doesn't take very long. A good lab will use both of these techniques where they're appropriate. Right. There's a controversy surrounding DNA, and I'm sure you've all heard of it. But let's go through it anyway. There is a perception amongst the public that there's some debate inside the scientific community about whether or not DNA is accurate, and if it's possible for two people on the planet to have the same DNA. Science is discussed inside the scientific literature, where there are peer-reviewed papers, and they're overwhelmingly in favor of this technology and the protocols, and particularly the analytic methods that are used. A lot of the current debate is due to media-produced ideas of what DNA can and cannot do outside of the scientific literature. Enter CSI, Miami, CSI Las Vegas, CSI New York. There's a lot of um, things that they give us sometimes, information that they give us, that the media gives us that's inaccurate. Typically, court cases where somebody's on trial. I'm trained as an expert witness at one end of my degree. Used to be that... As an expert witness, you went to the highest bidder. So, if the prosecution had hired you, you were paid not to give all the facts necessarily, but to give salient facts to their case and leave the others behind. Now, expert witnesses are actually hired by the court. So they are an objective force. They lay all the facts on the table. The prosecution picks up the ones they want to defend, and, um, you know, everybody picks the ones that they want, and then they defend it. it. has nothing to do with you. Unfortunately, it is an adversarial system. So instead of them paying the expert witness to bring out certain facts, what they do is try to discredit you. So then you're standing there. I've only ever been to one mock trial. I never want to do it again. It was absolutely awful. They go through all your personal life. They go through your professional life. They go through all of these things, and basically their job is to make you look bad. So as it says here, the defendant and prosecutors each have their own expert witnesses, so it looks like half of the scientists that are hired on one side of the argument about DNA and half of them are on the other side. But in all the cases where someone has been incorrectly convicted on DNA evidence, it had nothing to do with the DNA. The DNA is accurate. It had to do with the lab process and human error. (coughs) Oh, still more DNA controversy. The UK has a national DNA database. I don't know if you're aware of that. 4.5 million individuals are recorded on that database. Now, let me just make something clear here. It's my understanding that your actual physical DNA is not in the database somewhere, hiding in case they develop some sort of techniques where they can clone you sometime in the future. 150,000 of the people that are in that DNA database are children under the age of 16 in the UK. One-third of the DNA is taken from individuals who are not charged with an offense and have no criminal record. You can see there's a problem here with the ethics of it. CODIS. CSI, they're always talking about CODIS. No, they put something in CODIS and they didn't get a match or they couldn't find it. In any case, the United States is doing away with all the, um, what appears to be this ethical issue and this controversy that's going on in the UK right now. And they don't have a problem saying they've got 51 million criminal DNA records on their database and 1.5 million civil records for people who have not committed a crime but just happened to be asked for their DNA. Fingerprints. I'm only going through DNA and fingerprints because these are the two things that seem to come out the most in the media, the DNA and the fingerprints, as though all the cases are solved on DNA and fingerprints. <clears throat> We have two types of fingerprints. You have the patent fingerprint, which is visible to the naked eye and is photographed right away. Sometimes you'll see that. Sometimes it's true to life on CSI. Sometimes they photograph it. Sometimes they take latent they take latent fingerprints, sorry, are invisible, and they powder them with lots of different kinds. You'll, sometimes you'll see pink powder, or green powder, or black powder, and that has to do with this type of surface that it's on so that they can lift the print off of it. And, of course, it comes off on that sticky back plastic film Sometimes on CSI, I'm saying CSI over and over again because that's the title of the talk, but it could be on any of the other dramas, uh, police dramas and such. Um, you'll see, plain as day, they go, oh, here's a fingerprint. They look at it. They can see it. Anybody can see it. Instead of photographing it, they actually go and they get their little sticky back plastic and they pull the fingerprint off, which is really not necessary. Sometimes they'll photograph it in the lab, sometimes not. But Then they don't show you that, so you don't know. In the UK, the prints are held at the National Fingerprint Office, which is in New Scotland Yard, and they're analyzed with the AFRS system. CSI buffs will know about AFIS, or IAFIS. It's used by government agencies only. That means the FBI, the CIA... Sometimes you can get, they'll get phone calls from other people asking the FBI to look for somebody else's fingerprints because, believe it or not, APHIS is not located at the CSI Miami Crime Lab. They don't, in real life, in real terms, generally speaking, they don't have access. They can't just walk over to their fancy computer, scan it in, and then get a match. It doesn't work that way. Lots of times, fingerprints are not even analyzed with these recognition systems. The thing about recognition is that you have to have the information in the first place. If you have fingerprints that don't have... They're not in the database. They're not recognizable. And so they actually have experts, fingerprint experts, who go through them with their little loops, and they go through and they write everything down, and they look at all the different forms, and they go looking in their research books. Sometimes it can take months before they figure out whose fingerprint it is. And years, even. Right, here's some issues around fingerprints. Some people don't actually have any. I know that's hard to believe, and i bet you Al Capone wished he didn't have any, but he did. This lady, I was sitting in the doctor's office a couple of days ago, and I happened to pick up one of the um, National Geographic's, they were talking about fingerprints, and I thought, hey, I can use that. (laughs) This lady suffers from this genetic condition called Dermopathia pigmentosa reticularis, which is not something that's in Activia. It's an actual disease that has to do with your skin and your pigment. And for whatever reason, her fingerprints don't have the traditional whorls or anything on them. They're just plain. And her mom doesn't have any either. So you can imagine that this person goes to the airport, where in lots of airports in the world you actually have to put your thumbprint or your fingerprint on. So she gets to customs. She wants to go through security. She doesn't have any fingerprints. She always gets taken into custody and they always have to say she has to go to the airport six or eight hours ahead of when everybody else does so that she can get through security and get into board a flight. And her mommy and her mom as well. Now, these non criminal database issues. We have one point five million civil prints in the US, but because of a controversial issue and nature of the subject in the UK, the actual number is not available to the public, and believe me, I tried, but I couldn't get it. There was an issue with Heathrow Terminal 5. I don't know if you've heard what happened. When they opened Terminal 5, there was a fingerprint machine that you were meant to put your fingerprint on, and somehow that fingerprint was tied to the magnetic strip on your passport. What happened, we don't actually know what happened, but they wouldn't say, or they couldn't say, or at least it wasn't reported in the media, whether when you put your fingerprint on there, if that fingerprint was erased the next time the other guy came behind you and put his fingerprint on, or whether that fingerprint was recorded in a database somewhere that could be sent around the world to any airport. As you can see that there are some issues around privacy, there are issues around ethics, there was a big stink about it in the press, and then we heard nothing. But I flew out of Terminal 5 this summer, and there were no fingerprint machines in evidence. So I don't know what they've done. They've taken these million pounds worth of machinery and perhaps they've stored it until a the time that they can resolve these issues. right. This is what the media portray as crime scene investigation. It's titillating. It's exciting. It's glamorous. All those shapely CSIs walking around in high heels, flicking their gorgeous hair around, earrings, jewelry, the the works, and all those buff cops throwing their weight around, making the world safe for us all, and catching the bad guy in one hour. Very sterile. The truth of the matter is much sadder. CSIs spend a lot of time on their hands and knees, doing boring, monotonous, repetitive work that has to be meticulous, it has to be above reproach at court. They're often working in filthy, smelly places, they're dangerous environments, and they can spend hours at the mercy of the weather, which in places like Bahamas probably isn't an issue, but in the UK it is. They don't only produce um, processed trace evidence, but also bodily and decomp fluids in places where sometimes very violent crimes have been committed. That adds another element. Yes, it's a dirty job and somebody has to do it, but CSIs spend a lot of time engaged in gallows humor in order to deal with their stress. Um, They also have... Police police forces tend to have um, psychologists or counselors on staff to be able to help the SOCOS deal with some crimes because some of them are very, very bad, particularly when you're dealing with children. And it is a filthy job and somebody has to do it. Sounds glam, doesn't it? Thank you.